scriptures. So we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, to chapter 4, verse 6. And it says this. Now if the ministry that brought death, chiseled in letters on stones, came with glory, so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the Spirit, for if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was set aside was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Since then, we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, since we have this ministry because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, even now, as I pray, we acknowledge, God, that we cannot see your glory through any other means but your spirit, our eyes would be blind and our hearts would be hardened. So we ask, Lord, humbly, that you would reveal your glory to us this morning.
Show us your glory. Show us the light of the face of Jesus Christ in this word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis writes this in his Meditation in a Tool Shed. I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside, and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing the things by it. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed, and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in their regular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. Our lives can feel like we're looking at a beam instead of being in it. Last week we heard about God's glory in the Old Testament where where Moses goes before God. He puts him in a crevice so that he wouldn't vaporize and God reveals himself to us to himself in a cloud. He comes down his face is literally glowing with the light of God's glory. And for us, it could feel like we're left out. We're we're hearing grandiose stories of what God has done. You read the Gospels. You see Jesus performing miracles, being crucified, the entire sky being darkened, rising from the dead, and it could feel like we're looking at a beam. But we're not privileged to be in it. Like we're an outsider gazing through a window at what God is doing. But God seems to be mysteriously absent in our own lives. Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians to show the effect of God's glory beaming on us as new covenant believers in Christ. So here's the main idea this morning. Because of the glorious ministry of the Spirit, act with boldness and display with boldness. Let me repeat that. Because of the glorious ministry of the Spirit, act with boldness. And a part of that will be to display with boldness. So this sermon is going to come to you in two parts. Firstly, the glory of the ministry of the Spirit. The glory of the ministry of the Spirit. And secondly, as a result of that glory, act boldly. Act boldly. And we'll talk about two different actions that we're supposed to do boldly. Firstly, the glory of the ministry of the Spirit. Read with me in chapter 3, verse 
7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, chiseled in letters on stones, came with glory, so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? The ministry of the letter or of the law was glorious. We heard this last week. Moses, after seeing God's glory, is shining like a sun with brilliant rays of the glory of God. And what Paul is saying is that this glory, cloud on mountain glory, booming voice declaring the name of Yahweh glory, hide in a crevice so that you don't get crushed glory, got benched for the ministry of the Spirit. That if that glory was not enough for the people of God, it was beyond that. It's greater than that. If that glory got benched for this glory, then that means that this glory better be good. He elaborates in verse 9. For if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory... The ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. The glory of the ministry of the Spirit far surpasses the ministry of the letter. Now, that doesn't mean that the ministry of condemnation did not have glory. Condemnation from God to those who do not believe is still glorious. The righteousness of God being displayed in the judgment of the unjust is still glorious. But the ministry that brings righteousness, it doesn't just have glory, it overflows with it. It's a bursting geyser of glory. Some will say that doing things in order to earn your salvation, is more pious or more honorable. That God doesn't just give people handouts. That God helps those who help themselves. Brothers and sisters, that couldn't be farther from the truth. The work of Christ displays the glory of God far more than any action ever could. The work of Christ brings God all the glory. Why is that? Because you contribute nothing. Beware of those who try to convince you to trade the enduring treasure of righteousness with the murdering curse of the law. Legalism tricks you because it tricks you into believing that you can appease God and exalt yourself at the same time. That somehow if I'm good enough, if I perform well enough, if I'm righteous enough, then somehow I can appease this God and maintain my dignity at the same time. My own pride, my image. I did this and made God happy. I did that and now God's not 
mad at me. But brothers and sisters, Christ has done everything. Jesus paid it all. And when he does it all, that means that he gets all the glory. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I have good news for you. We call it the gospel. But I have to preface it with the understanding that the gospel is not primarily about you. It's about God. It's about his work. God in his delight in himself overflowed with joy and created the world. And he created man to be a steward to rule over it. And we ruined it. We, we distorted this glory by sinning against him, by disobeying this God. And as a result, the world has been fractured by sin. But God, in his goodness and mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, to live the perfect life that we can never live. Jesus didn't have to be a legalist. He completed the law with perfection. And what we did in response was we murdered him on a tree. And as he hung on the cross, God poured out his wrath, the punishment that you and I deserve on his shoulders. And he died. And he resurrected three days after three days, victorious over sin and death. And he reigns right now at the right hand of the Father. And the good news for you and I is that we get to partake in the rewards of Jesus who did everything for us. So the good news is that if you trust in him, if you turn away from your sins, if you repent from your sins and trust in this Christ, he will cleanse you with his blood. He will wash your sins away and you can be found righteous before God. Not because of anything that you have done. Not because of your righteousness. Not because of the ministry of the letter, but because of the ministry of the Spirit through the work of Christ. Let's read on in verse 10. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now. By comparison of the glory, that surpasses it. When the letter, when the ministry of the letter gets compared to the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit is so glorious, so magnificent, that the ministry of the letter looks like it has no glory. If the law was a flashlight... The gospel is a sun. No one outside during the day will use a flashlight in order to see better. It's dim in comparison. It's dark in comparison. Verse 11. For if what was set aside was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. And it should be most glorious. One thing to note here is that God is doing what brings him the most glory. So someone would ask, why did God save us? 
And the most common answer would be that he did it because he loves us. He cares for us. And that is true. I'm not trying to say that that's not true. God loves you. But that's not his primary reason. The primary reason why God loves us, the the reason behind that reason, is that he has a zeal for his glory. So why did God save us? He did it for his glory. Now, that could seem arrogant. Like you have this egomaniac God who's doing things for himself. And that would be true if it was us. But we're talking about God. It is literally impossible for God to think too much of himself. Oh man, God thinks he's too powerful. He's all powerful. God acts like he knows too much. He's all-knowing. But he's also good. See, a glorious good God is the best case scenario for the universe. See, a powerless good God is useless. You can have all the good intentions he wants, but he doesn't reign. He can't do anything for you. His hands are tied. And that means that he may mean well, but... There's really no hope for you. You can't put your trust in a powerless good God. And a glorious evil God is hopeless. You would have far bigger problems than a good God if you had an evil God. That would cause deep concern. But a glorious good God, that's a God that is worthy of our praise and adoration. It's out of his zeal for his glory that we get Christ. Our salvation is rooted in his glory. And brothers and sisters, if our salvation is rooted in the glory of God, then we can be confident that it will endure. Imagine if the gospel was contingent on your goodness. That would cause some deep concern. God's opinion of you oscillating with whenever you think, whenever you think that you're doing well. But if God loves you because of his glory, then that means that God will see to it that his work is done. Despite our deepest sins, despite our worst mistakes, despite our despicable desires. God cares for us. That's good news. So because of this ministry of the Spirit, because of this glorious ministry of Christ, we are to act boldly. Act boldly. There are two parts to this. First part, gaze boldly. Gaze boldly. Look with me at verse 12. Since then, we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. We have the hope of glory because of God's zeal for his glory. That's the ground for our boldness. 
Not because we have anything in ourselves to be bold about, but because God is the one that we can have complete confidence in. So when we act, when we gaze, or when we approach God, we can do it with full confidence. Because our confidence is in the one that we are approaching. Verse 13. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. So Moses covers his face after giving instruction from the Lord to the Israelites. Okay? So, so he descends from the mountain. His face is shining so he can see him coming down the hill. He tells them, this is what God commands you to do. And then he puts a veil over his face. And then he would go back up. He would receive more commands from the Lord, come back down, give his commands, and then put a veil over his face. And when he would do that, the Israelite hearts would be hardened. Or another way of putting it would be that they were prevented from seeing God's glory. So you may ask, why did Moses have to veil his face? Why not just display the glory of God before the Israelites for all time? Well, one of the reasons is because the Israelites wouldn't stop gazing at the face of Moses. It would be completely transfixed by the face of their leader. And the second reason is because Moses' face is not the one that you're supposed to be looking at. In other words, the face of Moses, shining with glory, was supposed to be a picture of someone's, someone else's face to come. So the Old Covenant mind, the Old Testament mind, is hardened apart from Christ. The veil covering the glory remains. The Old Covenant does not know the truth the complete truth, about Christ, and they still don't trust him as Messiah. And if it were lifted, they would have trusted Christ. In other words, there is no other way to see God's unveiled glory except through the face of Christ. When we preach the word, we preach Christ. When we read the Old Testament, the reason why we do so is because it reveals things to us about Christ, about his glory, about his person. Verse 15. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, the same veil remains. It's not uh, <clears throat> a veil, re- a veil lies over their hearts. The great irony of the Old Covenant is that it is completely true, but it is not saving. Again, I'll say it again. The great irony of the Old Covenant is that it is completely true, but not saving. Now, let me preface that. I'm saying that the Old Covenant by itself, by what the Israelites knew in the Old Testament, was not complete. 
It had to be complete in Christ. We read this in Hebrews, that people act in faith in this God and that their sins are cleansed through the blood of Christ. There's no other way to be saved. Without Christ, the Old Testament is incomplete. Verse 16. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Christ removes the veil. This veil that prevents us from seeing the glory of the face of Christ is removed. And when that happens, he also gives us lenses to see his glory everywhere, including the Old Testament. That Jesus is the lens by which we are able to correctly interpret the Old Testament. And when we're able to see Christ in the Old Testament, we are able to see God in the fullness of his glory. This also applies to other things. When we look at nature, we're able to delight in nature in the fullness of God's glory. Because we know the creator who designed it. That the warm, gentle breeze of spring... The heat rays of summer, being out on Redondo Beach yesterday and feeling the ocean breeze, those are all glimpses of the glory of Christ. And brothers and sisters, we as Christians are able to take that good gift of God and see God's glory in it because the veil is removed. Verse 17. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now this verse gets used a lot, but this verse is not talking about some ambiguous freedom. It's not talking about any kind of freedom or just freedom vaguely speaking. Verse 17 is talking about the freedom from the bondage of blindness. To God's glory. That the ministry of the Spirit, when the Spirit comes and unveils the face of Christ, that we are now free to see God's glory everywhere. We are no longer chained to our blindness. We are able to see God without a veil. Complete freedom. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're a Christian who speaks to people that aren't Christians, and I hope you do, I'm sure that you've heard the accusation that Christianity restricts you. Right? Christianity is just a bunch of rules. And, and I don't want to wear a straight jacket on my life. I want to be free. I want to be able to live my life the way that I see fit. But what Paul is saying here is not that Christianity restricts you, it actually frees you. It frees you to see God's glory and allows you to see creation the way that it was designed. For example, many people today talk about sexual liberty, that we have to be unhinged from the puritanical restrictions of patriarchy. But if we see it from the light of the glory of Christ, then we're able to see how the gift of sex actually reveals the goodness of God. 
And when it reveals the goodness of God, it actually reveals the glory of God. And when it reveals the glory of God, we're able to see God in his goodness and bask in his glory. And brothers and sisters, that's true freedom. That is true freedom. The world in its quest for liberty actually blinds you from being able to see God in the fullness of his glory. That's not freedom. That's slavery. Verse 18. And we all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. People who trust in Christ are able to look at the glory of God with unveiled faces. It is a surplus of glory. It's a never-ending stream of glory. You get to look and drink as much as you want. And what Paul is saying is that when we look at Jesus, when we look at the glory in the face of Jesus Christ, we are transformed from glory to glory. In other words, when you look at Jesus, you become more like Jesus. So the primary means of godliness is not merely avoiding sin. The primary means of godliness is not doing good deeds. The primary means of godliness, the way that you become holy, is by gazing at God's glory. And as we do, the Spirit transforms us into Christ-likeness. And notice that is not something that we do here. It's the Spirit that transforms us. It's the Spirit's work in us that makes us more like Jesus. And then the evidence of that change that the Spirit does in us is godliness. So you don't do good things in order to be godly. You do good things because you are godly. Let me repeat that. You don't do good things in order to be godly. You do good things because you are godly. And as you do good things as you act out the godliness that the Spirit is transforming you into, you begin to understand more of God's glory and his goodness. You're able to see dimensions of his glory and goodness that you weren't able to see before. And then as you see the different dimensions of God's glory and you delight in his goodness, the Spirit works even more in you to transform you even more into the likeness of Christ. And on and on and on and on it goes and becomes this upward spiral of joy and glory. And that spiral is called sanctification or transformation. As we gaze into the glory of Christ, the Spirit transforms us into Christ-likeness. And that transformation is expressed in holy living. So brothers and sisters, don't deprive yourself of that goodness 
gaze into the face of Christ. If you see brothers and sisters that aren't looking at Christ, you have a responsibility to grab their faces and turn them to the glory of God. And as you do, the hymn we sang earlier becomes true, that the things of earth become strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now there's a second component in terms of what we do. If we are to act boldly, we don't just gaze boldly, we proclaim boldly. We proclaim boldly. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since we have the Spirit, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. If the ministry we have is given to us by mercy, if it was a gift given to us, then we do not give up. The faithfulness in ministry, the encouragement from ministry is not dependent on results. Primarily, you're not looking for the number of baptisms, even though those are a great thing, or the number of conversions, even though that's a great thing, as a barometer of whether or not God is working in us. That should not be the basis of our encouragement in the ministry of the Spirit. Our hope Our faithfulness, our endurance should be derived from the faithfulness of God, from this glory of God, this constant glory that he has shown to us. And if God has been faithful for this long, brothers and sisters, he will continue to be. This life can be harsh, and we can become tattered and torn through hardship and struggle. But God has been good. And he will let his glory be known. And we can trust in that glory. Even when our circumstances do not seem glorious. Verse 2. Instead, instead of giving up, we have renounced secret and shameful things. Not acting deceitfully, or distorting the word of God, but by commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. Instead of giving up, we renounce our previous life. Instead of giving up in the difficulties of this life, we act with integrity and truth. We don't Distort the word of God. We openly display the truth. What compels people to Christ is not by being cool, but by being clear. Notice here in this verse that the open display of truth involves two components. It involves living with integrity and proclaiming the word of God faithfully. We want to live lives that clearly display Christ's likeness, and we want to proclaim the Bible that clearly displays the contents of the book. If you 
preach the gospel faithfully, but you live as a hypocrite, and you don't live in Christ, then you don't display the glory of God. Instead, you show the exact opposite. You actually teach the people around you that it's possible to obey Jesus while spitting in his face, while trampling on his body. Brothers and sisters, do not let that be. Now, that doesn't mean that we are sinless. Some people think that Christians are just a bunch of holier-than-thou folk, waving their finger at the culture, not listening to Taylor Swift or whatever. And I'm not trying to say that Taylor Swift is simple. Right? It doesn't mean that we don't sin. It means that we repent. Amen. That we trust in Christ and his goodness. That we try to live righteously. That we fight sin. That we live in church community where we're accountable for one another. Where brothers and sisters that see sins in your life that you're not able to see, point them out to you and rebuke you in love and encourage each other and cry together and laugh together. That is the, intent, in the integrity-filled life of the Christian. This also means that we proclaim the Bible faithfully. You can have very well-intentioned, kind people that will preach a gospel that sends people to hell. You could try to live righteous lives. You could feed the poor. You can care for the widow and the orphan. You could try to demolish structures of racial inequality. And those are all good things. We should all be advocates for that. At the same time, not preach a gospel that saves the very people that you are trying to serve. So what we need is a clear life and a clear gospel. That's why when we preach, we try to preach the words and the goal of the text. That's why we try to keep getting your face in the Bible. It's because we want to show you that these words aren't something that I devised last night, cackling in my bedroom. No, I took the words of the Bible, took the glory of Christ from the Bible, and I'm trying to display it in an open display of the truth. And when you read the Bible, when you read the Bible with other Christians or with people that aren't Christians, or when you preach the word or when you read the word, make a clear display of the truth. Live faithfully and proclaim faithfully, and you will live clearly and proclaim clearly. Verse 3. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Those who do not see will perish. 
they are blinded from seeing the glory of Christ. Unbelief is a tragedy. It's not just because of the threat of hell, even though that is a legitimate threat, but because of blindness. If you're not a Christian, you're not able to see this glory of God. You will never be able to taste this goodness. And when they see God, they won't be covered by the blood of the Lamb, but they will pay for their sins with their own blood in the lake of fire, all while being deprived of God's good glory. That's a tragedy. If you're not a Christian this morning, this is why we implore you to trust in Christ. Not just because we want to give you fire insurance. but because we believe that God is good. Amen. We want to give you something good. And this is why we pray for you. I hope if you're not a Christian, you have friendships with Christians. Firstly, if you're a Christian, I hope you're praying for your non-Christian friends. Secondly, this is why we pray for you. Because if you're blind, you can't just decide to see. It takes a supernatural working of the Spirit to unveil your eyes to be able to see the goodness of Christ. And that's why we pray for you. That's why we openly display this truth. And we pray that your eyes will see. In the meantime, we encourage you to dig deep. This isn't just something that happens passively where you lay in your bed and you wait until God opens your eyes. Investigate. Be curious. Ask good, intentional questions. Wrestle with issues of the faith. And meanwhile, ask God if he is real, if he's truly God, to unveil your eyes to see his glory. If it's a work of the Spirit, then ask him. Verse 5. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. If you're not a Christian, we are not trying to come at you with a hidden agenda. You might feel uncomfortable about filling out that visitor card. We are not trying to pull you into a cult. Who tries to keep the real weird, strange stuff away until you get inaugurated? <laughs> we are not trying to be a leech on your money or your time or on your life. We want to give you Jesus. We don't want to be Lord of your life. We want Christ to be the Lord of your life. And we want to serve you. So this church, Bethany Baptist Church, exists to serve you in any way that we can. So please, do not hesitate to ask us any questions that you might have or tell us of any needs that you might need help with. We are here to serve you. We want you, hopefully as we love you and care for you and as we speak to you, we want you to see God's glory. Christians, do not be offended when unbelievers reject you. 
if we're so bold to step out of our comfort zones and share the gospel, there will be hostility. Christ says this himself. If they hated me, they will hate you. But they aren't rejecting your glory. They're not rejecting you. They're not rejecting your pride. Because it's not about you anyway. When they reject your presentation of the gospel, they're rejecting Christ. And they can't see what they are missing. Why? Because their hearts are darkened. Yes, sinners are despicably wicked, but they're also victims of the blindness of their hearts. Verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. In order for our darkened hearts to see the glory of Christ, it takes a miracle. Amen. Not just any kind of miracle. Notice what Paul's referencing here that the God who says, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts. It takes the same power as Genesis 1. The power that said, let light shine out of darkness, that said, let there be light, and out of nothing shine light. It takes that degree of miracle to shine light in our hearts. And the light of the face of Christ beams into the darkness of our hearts with the knowledge of God's glory. Do you realize how amazing our salvation is? That we were blind in our darkness. And it took a Genesis 1 level miracle for us to see the glory of Christ. For us to understand Christ. For us to treasure Christ. If you're not a Christian, we do not think that we can convince you. Not by fancy words or by intelligent argument or by impassioned pleas. We don't think that we can do anything of our own power to bring you to saving knowledge of God. Only the Spirit can do that. At the same time, we are praying that God would enact the Genesis 1 miracle in you. That he would shine light into darkness and reveal himself to you. Bethany Baptist Church, we need to encourage each other with the truth of the gospel. The truth of God's infinite glory can, in our sinful, deceived, depraved hearts, become old and crusty. It's not because the light has become dim. It's because our sight has become blurred. And we need each other to be window wipers, to, play, to take the blinds off of our faces and point each other to the glory of God. And marvel at it together. It's part of the reason why we gather together. It's why we commit to one another's discipleship. It's because we want to help each other experience Jesus. And Christians, we used to live in complete darkness. And what God did was nothing short 
of a miracle. We can think that it would be cool to have a Moses experience, to have a cloud on mountain experience. But Christ has done a far greater thing into our hearts. Treasure this gospel. It is good news indeed. And as we do, we can marvel at God's goodness, singing the words of Charles Wesley. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. And I rose, went forth, and followed thee. God, thank you for your glory, for your goodness in our hearts. And we pray that your light would shine to the ends of the earth, to the furthest heart, to the furthest nation, to this city and this church, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.